Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. When Charles Moore first became a journalist in 1979, Britain was at a crossroads. There were fears the country was facing a perpetual crisis with soaring unemployment, inflation and social unrest. Britain was bitterly divided. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. Meanwhile, Moore quickly rose through the ranks of Fleet Street, becoming the editor of The Spectator in 1984, and later the editor of The Sunday Telegraph and The Daily Telegraph. Now, Lord Moore is a regular columnist in the publications he edited, and Britain, arguably, is just as divided as when he first started his career. My name is Stephen Edgington, and I'm a journalist for The Telegraph. In this series, I want to understand why we are so divided, and whether there's any way out of it. In this episode, Lord Moore and I discuss the penetration of British institutions, climate change, and the rise of China. My first question is about the Cultural Revolution going on in the West. And Ed West, the writer, he wrote a fantastic piece recently in Unheard. And he basically argues that the Cultural Revolution that the West has experienced in the last few decades is over. And I'm going to quote from the article and I want to get you to respond to it. So he says, No one would satirise the transgender movement today. No one would dare point fun at BLM or Pride Month. No one would dare joke about George Floyd. Because like the publishers of Gay Times in 1977 they might face jail for blasphemy. Indeed, the only satire made now pokes fun at the old establishment, like punching the corpse of a once ferocious zoo animal or the people who still hold the old beliefs. The elderly, the less educated, the rural and the provincial. The powerless. So I suppose my question to you, Charles, is has Woke already won the culture wars? Well, I think Ed's um, analysis is correct in that he fingers a point which is very striking which is not that um, people put forward views like uh, views on trans or knocking down statues or something like that, but that they really want to stop people putting forward other views. So they're trying to exercise a sort of authority or even oppression. And they do, in fact, possess that authority in a lot of institutions. They tend to be more public than private institutions, but they, to some extent, in both. So they're in big corporations, for example, where there's an enormous list of what you can't say. I mean, sometimes it's almost perhaps a literal list of what you can't say. But um, so they have become an establishment. And like all establishments, they, you know, badly need to be mocked. When establishments are mocked, they don't like it. So there's um, there's some risk there, but the risk can um, sharpen the fun of the mockery. Should we all just give up? Is it all over? There's nothing we can do about it. They've taken over these institutions and that's it. I don't agree about that at all because I think in life always, most of us going around not knowing quite what we do think about things. We keep on debating them, thinking about them, and it's by debating them that we develop what we think. And one of the things that happens is we come to realise that some of the positions that we took are completely ludicrous and some of the people who we revered are completely ludicrous. And some of the people who sounded very out-of-date might turn out to be right. And um, perhaps some of the people who sounded super modern were actually, in a way, quite traditional. Behind the, some of the rhetoric, that's quite a common factor too. So it's very, very important to sort of keep the torch burning or to use a different inflammatory metaphor to sort of chuck the match on the 
on the bonfire to um, to have a, a sizzling argument. Um, and it's the suppression of argument which is a problem. I think Ed's analysis is correct in that I think these things rather go in waves historically. He made that comparison in more modern times, but classically it was well known that in the 19th century, very broadly speaking, people in the sort of Regency era were very naughty and um, disobedient and riotous. And then their children became evangelical and uh, serious and, and Victorian. And the children tremendously disapproved of their dissolute parents. And so it goes on. And then um, there was a great sort of Bloomsbury-style rebellion against the Victorians, and these cycles recur. When I went to university, we just got over, we just had the last sit-in at my university of the 60s, though by this time it was actually the mid-70s, but that sort of trend of what we're then call revolting students uh, stopped. Um, and we started you know, to have dinner parties where we wore dinner jackets and sort of reacted against all this type of stuff, and were more conservative. We weren't very political, we weren't conservative with a big C, but we were sort of culturally, we became culturally conservative in reaction to really almost our older brothers. And uh, these cycles go, I think what you see now is a, um, a divergence between, between democracy and the ruling orthodoxy. So um, the right, broadly speaking, keeps winning elections and the, the left retains its stranglehold or tries to tighten its stranglehold on non-democratic institutions. And that's an interesting, um, so there's an odd sense in which woke helps conservatives in a political sense because it helps them win. Because as long as the Labour Party is seen as being woke, I don't think it can win an election. Well, it's funny because the Conservatives, as you say, quite rightly, have been in power for 11 years now in various different governments, you know, with the coalition and everything else. But yet we are at the sort of peak of wokeness. I'm not sure we're at the peak, actually. I think the peak of wokeness might have come perhaps in Theresa May's time. Um, And it had its most extreme expression in uh, Boris's time after the death of George Floyd and the sort of ambush by BLM. And I would say that since then, the challenge has grown. So while I'm sure you're right that it's running its way through the institution, so in a way it comes out more and more every day, also the opposition has grown tremendously because people have sort of started to see what this is and not to like it. And that I've noticed a lot. I've been following, for example, a lot about the National Trust, and it's very clear to me, partly by the volume of traffic I get in emails and letters from readers, but many other factors as well, that the way the National Trust is going deeply upsets a great many people for sort of cultural historical reasons. And those arguments, which I did try to make in print about two years ago, used to resonate a bit, but now they resonate much, much more. People are much more anxious about that sort of thing and, and readier to organise against it. And I find that about free speech at universities too. So I feel quite optimistic that there is um, a fight back. Well, it's funny because you talk about sort of swings between the left and right and the sort of cultural revolution may go one way or the other. And, you know, when you were at university, you said you were sort of reacting and becoming a small C conservative. And then you were a journalist in 1979 and you edited the Sunday Telegraph, the Daily Telegraph, the Spectator throughout the 90s until the early noughties. And at that point, you were seen as this, if I may say so, establishment conservative in a way you were sort of epitomizing that movement and whilst you had Blair on the other side but then but I want to bring you to to today do you see yourself as the counter-revolutionary as the heretic as a sort of part of this underground movement against woke as the person who's going against the cultural tide this Uh, rebel rebel Charles Moore first of all I think it was wrong to characterize the 80s quite as you were as you did because um the sort of rethinking of conservatism never took over the British establishment, even under Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, she was pretty resolute about it, but in terms of how the BBC behaved, for example, what the civil service thought about things, we always felt, I was editing The Spectator from 1984, that we were um, the gadfly against the orthodoxy rather than expression of the orthodoxy. But moving forward to now, one certainly feels that if one puts forward a small c culturally conservative position, one is in that odd position of quite possibly being in a majority, but also being a rather rare voice in national media. And so I perhaps like to try to be a bit of a, as it were, a spy for the past in the conversation of the present, um, because I do believe that you can't understand the present and therefore you can't have a good future if you don't respect and understand the past. And I think one of the things that the left very much always tries to do is abolish knowledge and understanding of the past, except for certain propaganda heroes that it creates. Um, 
so I think one very, very important to try to, particularly with a country with a great and long history like ours, is to try to explain that, apply it, and bring it forward against people who wish to erase it. And the point is, do, do you see it as sort of your role to move discourse further away from wokeism? And by, by saying, you know, by writing your column and by doing these interviews, you're sort of allowing people an escape route from that way of thinking. Well, not really for me to talk about my role personally, but I think in general there is an important role in, in trying to do that. And it's always important in all ways of thinking about everything that people do recognise that there is an alternative or many different options. And you, you just don't have to think that way. I remember a curious example of this when I was a teenager and I said to a very intelligent woman of my parents' generation that I'd just been working with deprived children in uh, Southwark. I was about 16, 17, and in a charity. And she said, deprived? Who deprived them? And I thought that was interesting because what she was doing was challenging was central left-wing assumption that people had had something that had been taken away from them. And by the way, that does certainly happen. But it was an interesting thing to think about. Am I just using this as a cant phrase? Perhaps it wasn't so much they would been deprived, but that um, opportunities hadn't yet presented itself or socialism had stopped their rise. Um, always ask these questions, always, always think about the thing you're being encouraged not to think about. And if you were to advise someone watching this video who is pretty depressed about, you know, what's going on in our institutions and they're depressed about wokeism and they see sort of the BBC and other places and the National Trust, you mentioned the National Trust, that's a good example. And they say, God, well, what do I do about this? I'm watching this video. I'm absolutely furious, yeah. but what, there's nothing I can do. Well, there never is nothing you can do. I mean, it's certainly difficult. But first of all, I think take a reasonably medium term to long view. Here's an analogy. Perhaps it's a bit like being gay in the 1950s when um, it was against the law uh, to perform homosexual acts. But you could find that there were other people who thought and felt your way. And then by the, when the 1960s came along, eventually these prohibitions were removed. So if you make that analogy about nowadays and um, people who feel that they're forced to think and speak in a certain way, if we work hard enough at this, it won't last well, this is what I was trying to say earlier, you know, this sort of under... Do you feel there is a sort of underground movement where people sort of whisper to each other and say, oh, I actually agree with you, yeah, yeah. nudge, nudge? Yes, there certainly is. There certainly very much is. Um, I mean, where I personally live in the country, it's not so underground because people have never been so um, bullied as they would be in a more public sector environment or in a more urban environment. But certainly in London, you know, you have to watch your step, don't you? One of the great successes of wokeism, very consciously planned, is to act rather like the left infiltrated trade unions in the 1960s and 70s. And what they've done is they've infiltrated HR departments. And so what appears to be sort of workplace ethics and helping staff is actually a form of thought control. And it's also a way of taking power away from the people who are supposed to run organisations, the executives. And empowering people who shouldn't run organisations like HR departments and also like groups that are allowed to form within employees. So there shouldn't, for example, in public sector be a Black Lives Matter group. It's not right that there should be a politicised organisation which is approved of by the employers and which the employees are in. Um, but it's very effective if you start those things to, for them to exercise illegitimate control within the organisation, which is not in the interest of the public, not in the interest of customers, not in the interest, in the case of media, of readers or viewers or listeners. And I think um, that's gone a long way and has to be unreeled. Do you think it's more subtle than that? And I think there's, two, there's sort of two general opinions on, on how institutions have been penetrated. There's the more direct way in which people, as you said, you know, they're sort of copying the tactics of militant and other people in the 1970s, yeah. 80s, trying to infiltrate these organisations very actively and they're sort of, yeah. you know, organised and talking to yeah. each other, etc. And then there's the sort of more subtle way of doing it, which is the general rule of discourse may move to the left and people feel that this is a very natural, um, a natural progression towards this stuff. They may think, well, look, I'm, I'm doing the right thing here by supporting Black Lives Matter. I'm doing the right thing by supporting trans rights. I've got to show that I'm an ally to these groups of people yeah. who are so oppressed. And they may genuinely think this and not think at all that this, even, that this is even 
a political act. They made us think... You're you're absolutely right. And this is how hardline ideology works, is it plays on the decent feelings of a great many people who don't understand it. This is also true very much of the National Trust. When they got going on all this stuff with the interim report last year about slavery and colonialism, what they call colonialism, they were criticised at the annual general meeting. And the chairman said, Black Lives Matter is not a party political organisation, it's a human rights movement. And of course he's right, it's not a party political organisation, but that's not the point. It's a political organisation. It's a hard left political organisation. And actually, in its attack on what it calls whiteness, it's a racist organisation. And I was very struck by how the people running the National Trust at the high level just absolutely didn't understand this. They just didn't know about it. Not stupid people, but they were ignorant of this. And so, under the absolutely appropriate concern for the fate of George Floyd or the condition of black people, though, by the way, I think the American and British situations are very different, that's exploited by people who have a completely different agendas. And it's very important to expose that. Um, and that, again, will help people to think about these issues more clearly. Similarly with transgender, I mean, very complicated issue because it, people who feel that they are trans, you know, those feelings must be respected. But um, you get this extraordinary denunciations, and it's particularly difficult with women, I think, for women, in which the whole idea of being a woman becomes sort of contested rather than a physical fact, which is, has caused great outrage and hurt among uh, many feminists. And again, I feel that the idea of a greater tolerance toward, towards transgender, which was good compared with prejudice and disapproval, has somehow turned into something quite different. This is really a slightly mad um, ideology. Do you think if it was option A, as it were earlier, where, you know, where the, it's a more direct... Uh, organised movement to infiltrate these organisations, do you think that would be slightly easier in a way to tackle because, you know, they're, they're an obvious enemy? Whereas where you've got the second option where it's more subtle, where people think they're doing the right thing, where the people think they're not even doing anything political, they're just being yeah. a, a sort of moral human being, that's almost harder, isn't it, to, to tackle? It is harder. And I think in an age in which most people are not a religious believer, it, believers, it's harder still because one of the things about religious belief is you have a moral framework which is always there, almost regardless of what the current political situation is. So you can refer your anxieties and thoughts about all of this to the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or the teaching of your traditions. But if you haven't got that, you're much more likely to pick up a sort of pseudo-religion. And I think that's what happens a lot. And young people in particular who are very morally anxious sometimes can be led to mistake to muddle up extremism with ardour. You should be ardent for the good, but that doesn't mean you should be extreme. So that, let's take the green issues. Um, the fact that Extinction Rebellion people are more extreme does not mean they care more about the environment than people who don't want to go gluing themselves to tube, tube trains or whatever. And people, this needs to be constantly reiterated. Do you think wokeism has, has become a religion of the, in that sense? Wokeism does seem to be to offer bogus, simple answers, like a bad religion. So you sort of, if you woke, or whatever the word is, you've got a sort of glib answer to every question. You know what you're supposed to say about whatever it is. What do you think about whaling or, um, or, or car batteries or um, China or... Um, uh, so it's an ideology. It's a radical ideology in that sense. It's also sort of patter, isn't it? It's a way of talking which is a passport to some things and it's also a way of talking which excludes other things and other people. If woke is a religion, can you talk about some of the icons that they, they would worship? Some of the, you know, what, what would they replace in their, you know, if they had their holy bible, what would that be? And what, what are British people's icons these days? You know, we've, religion has declined in the last few decades by a significant amount. I mean, you, you must have seen less people going to your local church, maybe. Um, what, what do people worship now? It's an interesting question and it's not very clear to me. I think the nearest thing to the religious impulse of salvation is the idea of saving the planet. And people have persuaded themselves, I think, falsely that the planet's about to explode or melt or whatever. And of course, if you do really think that, and you do really think that you can do something about it, then it's very understandable why you would try to do something about it. Though, by the way, they get in a muddle about this because they sometimes say there's no time left, 
in which case, if that's true, there is, a, there is nothing to be done. So why are they doing it? Um, There's a sort of confusion there. But I think, again, people feel very um, burnt up about it, and they therefore, that gives them a sort of licence, as, as bad religion always does, to be full of angry disapproval with, of people who don't agree with you. I mean, to be fair, I mean, we'll get onto the climate issue, I think, later on, but to be fair, I think that generally they would say, there's no time left, but we must act now anyway, just in case, you know, because they, they would say, well, look, we've only got 15 years to tackle climate change or something. And they would say, if we don't tackle it now, it's going to be really, really bad in the future. Well, you know? They're not is, saying the world's going to blow up. They're this, just is saying, bad argu- this is a bad argument, though, because yes. it keeps on being, the timing keeps being rescheduled. In 2008, I think it was, the Prince of Wales made a speech in Brazil when he said that we only had 100 months left to um, prevent irretrievable climate catastrophe. So every year, as it got, the, the 100 months got nearer, I did little tease in The Spectator saying, you know, we've only, how many months have we got left before irretrievable uh, uh, climate catastrophe? Um, and we reached irretrievable climate catastrophe, according to His Royal Highness's um, computation, and nothing happened. And when I asked the palace, what, um, so what is the situation now? There was talk about, well, it might be a bit more like 2033 or something like that. And no doubt when we get to 2033 and perhaps by then it's King Charles, there will be some further thing about how, you know, a bit later. And this also happens with religious sects. One of the things that religious sects quite often do is they announce the end of the world is nigh. That's a famous thing that used to be on their banners. And sometimes they used to gather, sometimes still do, I suppose, particularly in the United States, on a mountaintop or something to await the end of the world, and then rather sheepishly come down um, off it when nothing happened on the predicted day. And I do really feel there's, there's a sort of moral blackmail here that, you know, it's, it's, it, it's going to happen, it's going to happen really quickly, so you must have net zero. So if, if most nations agree that we've got to have net zero by 2050... I don't really know why they picked that figure, but that's what they do. Then you can be sure as eggs is eggs that um, Extinction Rebellion will say you've got to have it by 2025 because they just want to show that, you know, they're more burnt up about this problem. I suppose they're a bit of a pressure group in that sense. Um, but just back on to, to wokeism, one of the interesting things when you talk about this I- ideology or this, 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 this issue with people on the left or people who are woke themselves, they sometimes deny the existence of it. They say, look, there is no culture war. You're mad. This is the right wing, um, you know, stoking bigots and nationalism and all these awful things, populism that Boris Johnson and the Conservatives, as you say, it wins them elections. So this is something that the right basically just makes up to try and get people riled up. And actually, look, we're just, we're just peaceful anti-racists. We just want a lovely moral world where everyone's, there's, there's no injustice and everything's fantastic. So what do you say about that? There's, there's, there's no such thing as a culture war. You're just making it up. No, I, I don't think that's the case because, um, for example, the whole idea of, quote, decolonizing the curriculum or decolonizing anything is a highly political cultural act because what it says is everything that you think is good is bad really and it acts as if which is very strange no decolonization had taken place so um so if we're attacking slavery for example um slavery and the slave trade have been abolished for uh, you know roughly 200 years and big changes have taken place. And this is not acknowledged. It's somehow regarded as a sort of hypocrisy. Um, so suddenly we've got, uh, we've got to make all these changes now. And similarly, the British Empire hasn't existed in any serious sense since the 1960s. And its end was you know, known to be coming long, long before. And nobody has tried to increase, advance or even protect the British Empire, really, in my lifetime. And I'm 64. And yet now we have to decolonise everything. So something's going on here which is not just people saying let's try to be nice to people of other races um let's try to build a better world and so on it's much more accusatory and it tries and it also tries to have a sort of world theory of accusation so the enemies are white male westerners uh, and nowadays jews who are very much included it's become very anti-semitic this uh, movement and what they call settler colonialism which is therefore all the countries, most of the countries in the world that have strong democracies, actually United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who were, were of course settled by Britain. So Britain is also in the firing line on all of this. Um, so I think if people in general feel that 
in this country that they, their traditions, culture, history, values, etc., are under assault. They are, I don't want to be too alarmist about it, but they are basically right. And, um, and I think it's deliberate that it's so. And therefore it's very important, just as Marxists always used to um, speak about trying to take over the commanding heights of industry, what they're trying to do uh, in woke form is take over the commanding heights of culture. So that would be Oxford and Cambridge, um, administration, museums, um, newspapers. television, newspapers, uh, and things that are not exactly culture but have a strong cultural effect like the Royal Society or the Bank of England. Or, um, and that's very deliberate. And it's very, very unwelcome to people of a traditional cast of mind. Because if you're of a traditional cast of mind, it's not that you don't want any change. Of course you accept change. It's that you wish to respect the past because your understanding of culture is that it is a, an alliance of the, of, the, uh, of the dead, the living, and the not yet born. And um, so you're immediately suspicious um, of something that tries to erase that. And I think that erasure is, is, is being attempted. One of the things they do is, they, they, as you say, they try and erase certain parts of history or they talk about decolonization. But on the other side of that, the flip side of that, they try and promote other people from history. They try and promote minorities. They try and promote women. Can you comment on that? And why do they do that? They well, need their own icons. First of all, in one sense, people are quite very right always to look at history and find people who've been neglected in history who were actually very important or very interesting or both. And it has been the case until recently that women, for example, were um, under written about by historians mostly. And there was a certain view of the way you do history which tended to exclude women. Uh, and it turns out when you start looking that the, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, similarly, though this is more difficult because of the lack of written records often, a great deal is written about slavery without in a way telling you much about the life of a slave. So it tends to be predominantly a white view. That's not exclusively so by any means. And naturally you want to run right, you want to delve into that. And get a better imaginative grasp of what it was like to be a slave. I think all that's important. And in that way, a lot of what has largely come from the left is entirely appropriate. What I don't think is appropriate is either, either as I've already said, the erasure of the past or the over-moralising of the past, so that everything in the past becomes just a battle about who was good and who was bad and a sort of series of morality lessons. Whereas in particular, if you take a classic example of this, it seems to me, is the British Empire, it's not one thing. It's a whole load of different things, some of which were appalling, some of which were magnificent. It was very, very various. It involved, um, you know, commerce, war, peace, um, missionary work, medical work, botanical work, engineering work, artistic work, literary. Massive. And like all such enterprises, deeply fascinating and not possible to make simple generalisations about. One of the things they, they try and do is they sort of... They, they put guilt on people for their ancestors' alleged crimes, right? Yeah. And they, this is what they did in the Cultural Revolution. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm speaking later today to a North Korean defector. Yeah. And, you know, in, in North Korea, you can, be, you can be born, grow up, and your son will stay in the same uh, concentration camp because of the crime of your grandfather yes. in the Korean War. Yeah. And there's some interesting comparisons between sort of, you know, blaming your ancestors, blaming people today for their ancestors' actions. I can understand how that comes about because if you think that white, what BLM calls whiteness, is intrinsically bad, is an original sin, that is, of course, a genetic statement. And so it does matter who your ancestors were. And um, it's also... Therefore, it seems to me obviously a racist uh, analysis of things. So you're white simply because your ancestors are white. Um, that's the genes. So then it, uh, that does become very material. And um, if you take that appalling view of life, then um, you will wish to attack white people. And I think it's interesting that Jews get brought into this too, because I think you know, here are the most persecuted people in the whole of human history in terms of the length and savagery of their persecution. And still it happens again. And they are more and more explicitly seen on the left now. The words t Jew tend not to be used. They tend to use the word Zionist, but it's, the barriers are very 
thin, and they are basically constantly saying, what amounts to saying, that the Jews are bad people, and they're hereditarily bad people. And this is, you know, this is... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I don't think, when all that row blew up with Jeremy Corbyn, I don't believe that Jeremy Corbyn was in a personal sense an anti-Semite who sort of had visions of the evil of Jews as such. But he had actually allowed himself to be taken over by an ideology which was anti-Semitic. And he wouldn't face the consequences of that and still hasn't. Let's get back to this issue of people denying the existence of wokeness and of the cultural wars. Mm. And I, I, I sort of one of the, it, to be honest, it absolutely infuriates me because it's, it's, it's basically being gaslit, aren't you? You're basically being told that you're absolutely crazy yes. to even believe that this is going yeah. on. Why do they do it? Is it to infuriate us? Is it to make us more radical? I mean, I feel like it makes people more, more radical. Well, I think often on the left, um, and by the way, this occurs on the right too, a conspiracy theory grows up. One of the th- favourite conspiracy theories on the left is that the Tory media, as they put it in the British context, is sort of control things. And this came out very much in Brexit. They were actually, when you f- lined up the balance of forces, almost the only powerful institutions you could find in the country, which were in unequivocally pro-Brexit, were about four newspapers. And on the other side, you know, there was the BBC, the Financial Times, the Bank of England, the Confederation of British Industry, the TUC, all the universities, etc., etc. So, um, but but that's a very powerful idea that the people don't really agree with them, but they can't say the people are stupid, which is what they may believe. So they have to find people who are, to use a Marxist phrase, false consciousness. However, I would say something in defence of the left on this, which is that we who don't share those views do have to be careful because there is a significant minority of people who are racist, some of them on the left, by the way, and, and basically fairly horrible. And this is very apparent in social media. So you do have to be careful that you're not sort of pandering to some prejudice. So while I hate the sense of being constrained by, quote, you know, the danger of, quote, inappropriate remarks, I also do understand that one there's a danger of uh, playing to or feeding um, people of bad intent. So, for example, take, take the whole issue of immigration. I personally would argue that it's entirely legitimate, in fact, morally right, for the elected government to be able to control who comes into this country. But it's not legitimate to hate people who want to come into this country, let alone people who actually have come into this country. It's not it's no bad intent on their part that they wish to come here and they have every right to be here if that right has been granted by law. And I think those distinctions need to be very carefully maintained because some people of ill intent um, wish to blur those distinctions and just use it as a way of stigmatising certain people. So you have to be careful. Well, it's a very good point because the cultural war can go both ways and you've sort of got all these warriors on each side and both of them can be extremely, you know, yeah. radical and awful and just absolutely terrible. So you do have those minorities. And what you saw with Trump, you see, I mean, I thought Trump was right about some things and he was even brave about some things and he may even have done a bit of good about some things. For example, waking up people to the threat of China. But the trouble was he was of bad intent. He, he wasn't trying to improve things, I think, really. He was trying to sort of show off and stir up division to his own advantage. And actually, there's a very good example of that in, with him in relation to China, because he, I think, was probably right. At least it was a reasonable thing to raise. Did the virus leak from the Wuhan laboratory? I think it's very likely that it will be shown that it did. And I certainly don't think it's an illegitimate source of inquiry. But because Trump had done so much to discredit public discourse... Most other people in the West, if he said it, wouldn't pay attention to it. And now what we weren't allowed to say 18 months, I mean, the Daily Telegraph kindly did allow me to say it, but 18 months ago, but on the whole, we weren't allowed to say it, is now almost common parlance. And simply the whole issue of China makes me feel very angry with woke people, because here is the really big oppression threatening in the world. 
and they deny it pretty much. Um, they certainly ignore it. And these extraordinary ironies by which Cambridge College, Jesus College, but uh, and uh, Cambridge University as a whole actually, which is to extirpate somebody benefactors of the 17th century who may or may not have made money out of slavery while taking masses of money from a Chinese, the Chinese regime which is actually practicing slavery. It's, it's practicing slavery in, in, uh, on a massive scale in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs and it's also oppressing labor and, and wider populations in poor countries through the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you know, particularly Africa. And if you want to talk about countries' histories, I mean, China's history, very recent history, in fact, um, is hardly rosy, um, yeah. to put it lightly. I'm glad you mentioned China, because this is a country who comments on the culture wars in Western nations. For example, they, you know, Chinese officials criticise the United States for allegedly being systemically racist in various different institutions, yeah. and they say... Um, we're extremely concerned about America's treatment of black people, etc., yeah. which is rather ironic. I'm sure you can comment on that. Do you think these culture wars help our enemies, Russia and China, because our, country, our, our societies are becoming more divided and therefore we're less united when we're wanting, we need to tackle you know, these growing threats outside? We do look inward too much, and that's particularly true in recent US debates where people in students in Princeton and Yale and things keep on saying to fellow white people, you know, check your privilege, but they're not checking their own. And they're not thinking about what's actually going on in the world, the unbelievable luxury they have of attending great universities in an atmosphere of freedom, which they then, to some extent, try to constrain, without realising that it's literally impossible to attend such a university in China. There are some very clever people in Chinese universities, but they're not free. They can't say what they want. They don't have freedom of thought. And if they exhibit freedom of thought, um, they get squashed. So um, I think we're much too inward looking. And uh, you're right, the Chinese will, in particular, regime will exploit that. Um, and I read China Daily, the uh, newspaper. And what it does is it sort of soft cop, soft cop, hard cop all the time. So it praises any country with which it has some sort of deal over which it has some sort of control. So, for example, it's got lots and lots of African countries into big debt traps. And there are lots of articles of a very bromide kind in China Daily about, you know, um, fantastic um, achievements in Angola or, um, you know, clean water in Rwanda or whatever it might be, Sudan. Uh, and then there'll be equally opposite sort of virulent articles about how everyone in um, Britain is much more ill than anywhere else or <laughs> um, any country that they haven't got under their control. And the way they sell it as propaganda, which is quite appealing, I'm afraid, in the West, is that China is harmonious and we are aggressive. And harmonious really means uniform and totally controlled. Actually, the Chinese are immensely aggressive, not the Chinese people, of course, but the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese regime. And we must be aware of how profoundly the regime does not want uh, freedom of any kind commercial, spiritual, intellectual, cultural, anything. They want one thing, which is, or two things which they link, the domination of the world by China and the domination of China by the Chinese Communist Party. It's funny as well, because I think those of us in the West sometimes forget that China isn't this one sort of homogenous block. In fact, it's a country with thousands of different peoples, ethnicities, languages, Xinjiang, you talked about Tibet and all these other places. And, you know, it's not this sort of monolithic yeah. thing with, with, with one view. And, and, and the people also, I, I suspect, you know, heavily suspect that there is much dissent within China, but you just wouldn't know about it. Yes. And in fact, for example, when COVID started to get going, but had not been acknowledged by the Chinese regime, there was a very large, very um, active internet um, protest about what was going on and how the truth wasn't being told which of course was then repressed and people were locked up and so on and so on. But, and of course there's tremendous control of the web in, in China. But you're right, distance does, does nevertheless exist and it breaks out where, where it can. But the people who do that are terribly brave and one of their great outlets for that was Hong Kong and that's also disappearing now. Let's stick with, with wokeism, but sort of external wokeism. I'm, I'm interested in these debates around the world. Where, yeah. where we normally focus on the UK and the USA 
has the have these debates infected other countries, other other in the Western world? That is, you know, is France experiencing the same cultural revolution as is Germany, as Spain, and externally, you know, other non-Western countries are, are are China and Russia and other you know other places experiencing these debates, or is it just in the Anglosphere? It's not just in the Anglosphere, but it's much more in the West than anywhere else. So I I, I find um, you know friends from India or something are sort of um, amused and think how ridiculous it is some of these arguments that we're having but it's certainly there in in germany or um or france um and take somewhat different forms but um it's very much there and some of this is international so for example I, i've detected a very common in the sense of shared orthodoxy among people who run museums across the western world which is that they are terrified of being accused of colonialism and they think they're going to lose their collections because the whole idea of a museum is considered an enlightenment idea and therefore bad and not respecting of other cultures. And so they get down on the knee to um, BLM and something like that, uh, things like that. So, for example, I don't think it was entirely coincidence that the British Museum in Britain was first out of the traps to say, you know, the British Museum is with, I think it says, with the soul and spirit of BLM. It said that almost straight away. And the director who said that was a German. And um, uh, uh, he um, appeared to be expressing what's already an orthodoxy in Germany, then became an orthodoxy here. And I think you see that a bit in other worlds, like, say, music, which is very international, um, theatre, slightly less international, but international corporations, they all pick up versions of similar arguments. Now, this issue of China is a fascinating one in, in, in relation to the UK, because in the last 10, 20 years, you've had politicians, in a way, sucking up to China. You know, you had the, yeah. the era, the golden era, which is yeah. what George Osborne called it, where he you know, invited famously David Cameron and Xi Jinping had a pint in, uh, I think, is it David Cameron's local, 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 um, local pub. I think Boris faces a huge dilemma here, because on the one hand, he doesn't want to be what he calls China-phobic, and he doesn't want to um, destroy thousands of jobs, destroy business investments, and there's huge amounts, you know, both countries are sort of interlocked in a way, in, in, in many ways, over yeah. the last 10, 20 years. But on the other hand, obviously, there are these awful human rights abuses in Xinjiang and other problems, and, and, and China's entire system is basically a counterbalance to the West. I mean, it, it has completely opposing values to us, and wants to, as you say, has very dark ambitions for the world, from our yeah. point of view. So Boris faces a tough decision. What do you think he's going to do? And do you think it is as easy as just decoupling everything? We, we just say, no, we're not going to have any more trade investment. We're not going to have Huawei invested in our infrastructure. We're not going to have you building nuclear power plants, etc. Or is there sort of balance that he can, he can have? I don't know that balance is quite the right word because I think China is a massive threat. And the word phobia, after all, means fear. And in that sense, we have good reason to be sinophobic not of the Chinese people, as I say, but of the regime. I think it means fear without sort of, you know, without, an unjustified yes, fear. we have a justified fear of China um, because, it's, first of all, it's very powerful and secondly, it can't be trusted. I think the key thing in here is, is the lack of trust. If we had let Huawei in, well, actually, we did let Huawei in, um, they would have used it to spy on us. And, and, and I think they were using it to spy on us. When they get into British universities, they use that to spy on other Chinese in universities and they use it to steal scientific knowledge and apply it for military purposes. When they advance the Belt and Road Initiative across the world, they're not trying to promote free trade. They're trying to get privileged access to raw materials and, and ports. So can you deal with them? Can you deal with them with mutual honesty uh, or will they actually be just sort of trying to get inside so they can is it more like a trojan horse um and you know will they launch cyber attacks and all the rest of it so it's a really really hard question however we shouldn't be trying to freeze china out of everything we should be trying to make it clear that if it's a, if it can be a trusted partner is a partner is what it should be and the primary way of doing that is through fairly fair trade, um, you know, according to rules of contract, rather than um, what amounts to theft in many of the ways that they do it. And also a proper partaking in international institutions. But China is acquisitive. So when it 
its approach to all UN institutions is not to let a thousand flowers bloom, to use a, a Mao phrase, um, which of course he didn't mean, um, but to and, and, and encourage all the poorer nations, but to control them. So, um, you know, they make sure that the African nations that are in the Belt and Road Initiative praise them for their humane treatment of the Uyghurs, for example. You won't find an African country at the United Nations that uh, will dare criticise their treatment of the Uyghurs, and so on. Or even a Muslim country. Yeah, I mean, this is an extraordinary thing, a very important point, that um, the Muslim countries have almost all now given up raising the cause of the Uyghurs. Even Turkey, which was doing it big time, has dropped it because of pressure from China. So here is a, a, a large Muslim population which is now being, as it were, shunned by the Ummah um, because of um, Chinese pressure. Very important and interesting example. Every deal you have with China is political. Everything that they deal with, they see it as a sort of zero-sum game and everything's a sort of, you know, they've got this kind of Machiavellian view on everything, that nothing can just be a simple trade deal. It's always got, you know, everything's attached to it. So how do you, how does Boris deal with that? I mean, does, what, do you think he instinctively is pro-China or does he have, you know, what, what are his instincts? I think my, my guess on this is that he, first of all, hasn't fully thought it through. He took a lot of persuading to stop the Huawei thing and he only finally did stop it after COVID began. Uh, having refused to stop it a few months before. I think he's ill-informed about it, and I think um, that's an institutional problem, not so much a personal problem. We, we'd invested a lot in the golden era, and we hadn't given any thought about this. And you'll still find the Foreign Office sort of creeping back to a golden era position. Also, it's a genuinely difficult one. What do you do? If, if um, you don't want to do something that's pointlessly provocative, and there are many things we need from China which we can't just immediately drop. We may in longer term be able to substitute, but we can't immediately drop. And also, I think there ought to be a presumption that it's possible to trade with such a country in a fair way, particularly when it, in things which are not sensitive. I mean, you know, why shouldn't we buy, to take a very old-fashioned example, tea from China? You know, what's wrong with that? Um, and they can accordingly buy um, whiskey, whatever it might be. You know, um, and, for example, friends in Hong Kong who are very anti the regime in uh, Beijing will tend not to say we should break everything off. They will tend to say, let's try to establish things on a basis that all trading partners can respect rather than it all being politicised. Not sure whether, I, you know, unfortunately, I think Xi Jinping's very um, hard line and quite foolish on this, so I'm not sure how far this can be arranged. But I would, I would sympathise with people who try to do that rather than just saying have nothing to do with the people. But be no in, in no doubt, China is, is trying to be the greatest economic and military power on a timetable, and it's trying to bring forward the timetable. And if it does that, it will not wish a free world to exist. One of the negative externalities of that ambition is a huge amount of global emissions. China represents yeah. you know, yeah. a massive percentage of um, CO2 emissions worldwide, whereas Britain represents around 1%, less, yeah. a little less than 1%, I think. Yeah. Um, do you think we overestimate the impact that we can have here in the UK on emissions, on climate change? You know, Boris talks about net zero. Let's say we get down to net zero. We eliminate 1% of global emissions. Meanwhile, China, and this is the old argument, meanwhile, China and India are building coal power stations every week. Yes. I mean, first of all, there's the point about so-called carbon leakage. Um, if we don't produce it here, that doesn't mean it's not produced and we don't buy the benefits of it. We just don't produce them to our advantage in this country. But more broadly, also, it's a question of, yes, the share of the whole thing. And uh, China, India and Russia, I think between them, um, produce 40% of uh, world carbon dioxide, and they're not going to stop. And um, China, of course, says it's going to stop, but it can't be held to that. And it will make a lot of noise, because it's understood how to play this rhetorical game now, without doing it. It's still... Um, opening new coal-fired power stations. It has existing thousands, I think it's correct to say, of coal-fired power stations. So without that global cooperation, British decarbonising is almost literally useless, except, and it's an important except, if you get good technological innovation out of it. So if you develop things which are of use to the world in decarbonising, um, 
that's a great benefit to humanity. But what you can't do is make global warming stop over this small island by hitting the net zero targets. You will have almost literally no effect on that. And so what you will do if you're not careful is um, impoverish your country, disadvantage it against its competitors, bear down heavily on poor people because of things like high heating costs and not get anything out of it. What people say, climate activists and even, you know, non-climate activists who might believe climate change is a huge problem, you know, many, I think most of my friends and family would agree that we must do everything we can to stop climate change. And, and they say, well, these things you talk about, you know, heating prices going up a little bit, fuel going up, this is irrelevant. We're all going to, we're all going to be dead in 15 years' time. Well, I come back to the argument we had there earlier. If, it's, if we are all going to be dead in 15 years' time, then that's going to happen. It's too late to stop it. This movement, this climate movement, seems to me to have been vastly successful in a very short period of time, especially on discourse. You can basically not say anything against them without being accused of yeah. being a denier. And one of the extraordinary things that happened in Theresa May's time when she was uh, you know, leaving as Prime Minister, there was this debate in Parliament and this vote basically, to, I think it was to reduce, uh, again, to reduce our net zero commitment back by, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I, I forget the exact details. But basically this thing went through Parliament with almost no debate, barely any MPs even turning yeah. to vote on it. And it could cost us a trillion p- plus yeah. pounds to do this. Yeah. Um, do you think there is a lack of discourse on this? And, and, and do you think the discourse is toxic on this issue? Yes. I mean, it's a well-known, you speak, described as Parkinson's law, isn't it? That the more trivial the, uh, in the, the subject, the greater the debate on it, and, and, and therefore on a great subject, very little debate. So I think the Houses of Parliament spent 700 hours debating fox hunting um, and, um, uh, and virtually no debate on whether or not we have to have net zero or indeed voting to the, there is a climate emergency. Very important point this because Parliament voted that there is a climate emergency and once you declare an emergency that almost as we see with Covid is a very important way of shutting down debate, freedom and so on. No proper evidence of an emergency. So yes I think um, uh, it's a very poor form of discourse, and it comes back to what, where we began, that it seems to be very important for some people to prevent discussion in order to advance their view, whereas surely the way to advance your good views in a good society is to test them, and therefore to discuss them vigorously. So let's focus on some of the implications of net zero, because that's a very you know good little phrase that I'm sure politicians love to use, but what does it actually mean for ordinary people? Can you talk through what it might mean for an ordinary person growing uh, in Sunderland, in the Red Wall, or even in, down south in London or in the, the Shires? What would it mean in the next few decades? Well, just to talk about the Red Wall, let's, let's just consider quite an important point. Um, it's colder in the north than the south. I'm not sure the people in London realise that. But um, therefore... Um, Anything to do with heating, serious problem for people in the whole of Britain, actually, but very serious problem for people in the north and in Scotland um, and in Northern Ireland and, uh, and in the countryside where it tends to be colder. Um, so the, the distribution effect of this will not be even. And when it happens that you have to pay a great deal to be colder, you won't like it and you won't vote for the people who imposed it on you, particularly, I think, if you think that they did it because they wished to be virtuous rather than because they wished to help you. We've lived in a sort of very beneficial energy situation since the privatisations of, um, of the late 80s. We established a, a generation and distribution system which is quite efficient and quite cheap and offered people choice. By no means perfect, it's a very difficult subject about monopolies and so on, but still. And we're now destroying that. And this will heavily affect um, convenience and cost and warmth. And the thing about energy, I just take the word energy, not for nothing is the word energy of so, such importance. This is what the generation of power in various forms makes the world work. And it's the great difference between us and life 300 years ago. And if we don't get this right we um, condemn ourselves to a great deal of unnecessary misery um, and also to greater inequality because, for obvious reasons, rich people will be able to find ways of bearing that cost, heating themselves, making more choices, and most people won't. And quite rightly, I don't blame rich people for this. They often rather like to experiment with green things because they can afford to. So they can see, you know, let's, it'll be fun. Let's have a massive, great um, pump that's uh, powered out of my lake 
I mean, or, or, um, sorry, not powered out of my lake. I put it in my lake, and then, and um, or let's have a hydro scheme, or um, and so on. And they can make expensive mistakes, and that's fine. And often, very good inventions come out of expensive mistakes by rich people or big companies. But most people don't have that choice. If they spend twenty thousand pounds, which they might have to, on heat pumps, and they don't work, twenty thousand pounds is um, could easily be their annual income. I want to ask two more questions. Um, first of all, on this issue of what's, what's now called a climate lockdown. So you may have noticed uh, with these coronavirus lockdowns, people aren't really leaving their homes. They're not traveling as much. They're using less fuel. Yeah. They're certainly not you know, traveling by air anymore, uh, yeah. almost at all. Um, you know, holidays have basically become illegal for, for, for a very yeah. long period of time. And there yeah. are lots of climate activists looking at this thinking, this is fantastic. Yeah. You know, we're not having, we don't have any air travel. We don't have any pollution from that. We don't have any um, people leaving their homes for various different reasons. You know, this is brilliant. We may want to use these lockdowns as a way to tackle climate change. Are you concerned about that? Yes. I mean, yes, I think it's important. If I'm not one of those people who believes that economic growth is the be-all and end-all of everything because um, life is about more important things. But what is also true is that an end to economic growth imposes misery, and it imposes misery on the people least able to uh, get around the problem. So, personally, I think it would be better for our souls if we weren't getting on an aeroplane every week, which actually most people don't, but quite a lot of people do, you know. And there is much pleasure to be had from going more slowly in some ways, and, you know, consumerism is not the purpose of life, and so on. But if you... The way people make their livings is to do with activity. So any tax or ban on activity narrows the sphere of life. And what the danger for the West, and for all places, but particularly the West, I think, is that we start to live in a smaller room and it sort of starts to close in on us. And then that, of course, bears more heavily on the next generation because one reason one generation does something, the rising generation does something, is the belief that things can get better. But if you're actually getting poorer, if you can travel less, if you can make less choice, if you're physically colder, um, and so on, it's no fun. And, and it reduces hope, and it's hope that allows civilization to renew itself. Boris Johnson and Carrie Johnson, in fact, are extremely keen on these climate issues and, you know, We've been talking about net zero. This is Boris Johnson's, one of his major flagship policies. Do you think, is he going to be hitting bumps in the road in the next 10 years? As he's still, I suspect he'll be prime minister for a relatively long time. You know, he's got a great lead in the polls and everything else. So do you think this is going to be one of his major issues coming down the line? Or will it, you know, be delayed again by the next prime minister or the next one? Well, I'm afraid I do look at it a bit cynically. Um, Not just about Boris, but about everybody. First of all, he wants to have a success at COP26, and I think things will look rather different after that. Secondly, um, he doesn't want to allow another political party, presumably largely Labour, to get a sort of foot in the door on this subject in which they own greenery. So it, it, it suits his book to deal with climate sceptics in quite a friendly way and also with uh, strongly anti-climate change people um, as well, in quite a friendly, there's a sort of let's cover the waterfront here. And thirdly, he and all politicians know that the worst of their decisions will not have the worst of their effects until after they've left office. Though he may be wrong about that because things may rush forward with things like heat pumps, cars and things, and people get angry before that. And I believe that any leader, and certainly Boris, who's very quick on his feet, if he finds that everybody's getting furious about electric cars or heat pumps or whatever, will change his tune. I'm sorry that we don't have political leadership that is braver on these issues, um, but I can sort of see why we don't. And I think the thing to do is to keep a, a torch burning, though not one that I hope that emits too much carbon, for, um, a, um, for when we come to see the greater reality of these matters, which I think is, is coming. Well, it's funny, um, I, we will end, but I was, go- I was going to say Margaret Thatcher was one of these people who did think about climate change to begin with. And that's uh, definitely a topic for another time. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Fun. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know 
via the Apple Podcasts app. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 